I saw the thing coming out of the sky. It had a one long horn and one big eye. I commenced to shake him and I said, Ooh-wee. It looks like a purple people leader to me. It was a one eyed, one horn flying purple people leader. A one eyed, one horn flying purple people leader. Sure looks strange to me. Oh, well, he came down to earth and he lit in a tree. I said, Mr. Purple People Leader, don't eat me. I heard him say in a voice so gruff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowski about life, love, and the entertainment industry. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of SlashFilm.com's podcast, The Slash Filmcast. And joining me today is the man who played Bob Bishop in the NBC television series Heroes, Stephen Tobolowski. Thanks for joining me today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, David. I'm feeling very, very honored. Uh, Bob was uh, Bob was one of those golden characters. I, re- I remember at the beginning, Bob didn't even have a name. I, I remember people used to say the, man, the acronym of the man who turns things into gold, whatever that is, T-M-T-I-G, whatever, whatever that is. Uh, boy, I remember my audition for heroes and people should know when you do an audition for a big show like that it's kind of nerve-wracking you have to sit in there with all the directors and the producers and the writers and they all sit in like uh school desks (laughs) you know like at an ice cream store Uh and they all sit in school desks at the back of the room and you have to come in and do your audition and i remember i did my audition and they gave me notes and they said well can you do it funny and and i go well well sure I still really wasn't quite sure who Bob Bishop was, who my character was. But I did it funny. They said, well, can you do it threatening? I go, sure, I could do it threatening. They said, well, can you do it kind of mysteriously? So I did it with a sort of mysterious quality in it. And, and I go, you know, I really don't quite know who I am. Which way are you thinking? And they said, well, actually, we have no idea. In fact, we're not even sure if it's going to be Robert Bishop. It may be Roberta bishop they were also auditioning women for the part now i've always threatened you know i always say this at the beginning of these shows but as i think about it i think heroes has to be another story because there was a lot that happened on that show that was funny and fantastic and weird and and i think people would enjoy it okay well Let's put heroes to bed, and I'll write a story about heroes. Well, it sounds like they, uh, it sounds like they put as much thought into your character as they did into the series as a whole. <laughs> Zing! Zing! <laughs> you know, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I know, blink that was, twice if you agree with me. That blink, was, blink. That was okay. totally mine. That was totally my, my thoughts okay. completely. But speaking yes. of some of the roles you've had, Stephen, you know, I think last week you were telling me about how uh, you were going into audition as an elephant uh, who's trying to help a donkey out with diarrhea. Is that is that correct? No, that is incorrect, David. It was an elephant. You know, you always get this wrong. It's an <laughs> elephant that was helping a giraffe out with tummy trouble. Oh. The giraffe had diarrhea. Oh, so- giraffe. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, giraffe had diarrhea. I was and way you know, off. I was way you off. You know, as an actor, that you're probably not going to get a part when when the fart joke improvs you did are like the best things you did at the audition. You know, when you're driving home and you're redoing that kind of audition in your head, you're doing the postmortem in your head, you thought like, oh yeah, man, that fart stuff was hysterical. 
God, I really slayed him with the fart stuff. When you know you're doing that, you know you ain't getting the part. Yeah, I got no phone call here, David. Nothing. Okay, yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, did you get the role? <laughs> no, I got nothing. I got no-, no, that's not true. Oh, that's not true. I do have news. I did get a TV part this week. Oh, what is it? It is on, I'm um, reading the front page here, True Jackson VP. I think it's a show on Nickelodeon. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, Nickelodeon. I've heard of that. Uh, and it's, uh, they offered me the role of Lars Balthazar. You know, I didn't have to audition for this. And it's always interesting when a producer offers you a part because you get an insight into how they see you. Uh, like some of the parts that were offered me, offered me, um, I've been offered parts of street people. You know, they think of me as kind of a street person kind of guy. I've been offered sex uh, offenders several times. You know, here we'll do this. But this part they offered me is of a celloist. A, um, a... I don't know if that's how you pronounce cellist, Stephen. <laughs> no. Oh, and, uh, you know, I guess I, since they offered me the part, I guess I can pronounce it anyway. Now, how do you say it? <laughs> what 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 do you say? I don't want to. I Chell- don't want to be cellist. 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 Yeah. So it's, you don't pronounce the O. Yeah, that's correct. I see the ch- It's like me Tobolowski with the silent W. Same thing. <laughs> you know. Uh, but I was looking. I'm looking right now at the front page, and and I'm looking, and I'm. It's making me very happy because it looks like it's going to be filming in Los Angeles. That's always good. You don't you don't have to leave town. I've had to leave town so many times. In fact, that's kind of the subject. I was going to bring up today because I've been getting a lot of emails. It's Stephen Tobolowski at gmail.com for all you people out there. I've been getting a lot of emails of people asking me a lot of inside baseball questions about what it's like to have worked on this show or that show. And basically people are asking me a lot of what it's like to work in Hollywood, not realizing that they're asking me a trick question. And the trick is, is that a lot of what we know as Hollywood is not really shot in Hollywood anymore. And I think I mentioned this in uh, the Tobolowsky Files uh, episode three about wild hogs, that a lot of times a movie is shot anywhere in the world uh, where it's cheap. And, and Hollywood could be anywhere these days where production is inexpensive. And one of the centers of cheap production for the last two decades has been Canada, uh, more specifically Vancouver. Now, I want to get one thing straight at the onset. Vancouver is a wonderful city filled with big-hearted people and highly alcoholic beer. And if you've never been there, you still probably have seen Vancouver without knowing it. Any movie that takes place in a typical American town, but they have tons of Indian restaurants in the background, is probably Vancouver. Any movie that takes place in Texas, but with mountains, is probably Vancouver. Any movie that centers around an alien zombie, space zombie, vampire, ghost, walking dead, living dead, were all probably shot in Vancouver. I don't know how Vancouver became the sci-fi monster capital of the world, but it did. And my guess, it's again, and just a speculation, is 
it began with the enormous popularity of the X-Files, which was shot up in Vancouver. And many series followed. Uh, Lone Gunman, Outer Limits, Millennium, Poltergeist, Dead Zone. The list goes on and on and on and on. If you ran into a fellow actor in Vancouver, it was always a good news, bad news situation. The good news was they were working. The bad news was they were probably working with a mummy. Now, as long as the viewing public wants to view these films, and they are cheap to make, they will be made. I know people get a cognitive dissonance when they try to put the concept of science fiction movie and cheap together, but that's probably because they're thinking of James Cameron. Remember, the principle of entropy applies to everything in the universe, and science fiction movies are no different. There is a big trickle down from the heights of Avatar, and most of that trickle happens in Vancouver. For a lot of you people who are not in the know, there are many ways a science fiction film can be made on the cheap. First of all, you could save a lot of money on sets by having several scenes take place in a laboratory. Now, this is a big cost cutter because a laboratory is, in reality, just a big old empty room. Any empty room anywhere. You put a Bunsen burner in it and some boiling beakers and you got a chem lab. You throw a body in there, you have a biochem lab. You put down some old computer monitors and black desk phones and a map of the world. You have a defense department lab. You put up a map of the solar system. You have a UFO conspiracy lab. If the room is concrete, that's a bonus. You have an underground lab. In Vancouver, they let you shoot in the sewers so you get an underground bunker-type lab with lots of gauges on the walls and running water. One of the fringe benefits of shooting in a lab is you can also save on costumes by utilizing the lab technician, which means extras in lab coats. Give them a clipboard, they become an engineer. Also remember, by definition, a science fiction movie does not make sense, so you don't really need a script. Now, don't get me wrong. It's nice if you have a script. It's nice if you have a good script, but it's not essential. Jeff Goldblum can turn into a fly, or Roland Emmerich can trot out space people or the Mayan calendar weather to destroy the world over and over and over again, and we could still go out afterwards and have a cheeseburger. Rather than real scripts, writers use formulas of some nonsensical thing that seems to have worked before. This is why you always end up with a lot of sequels in science fiction and various indirect retellings of the same nutty story. I'll give you an example. We'll do this together. The Earth gets invaded by fill-in-the-blank. One, bad aliens. Two, good aliens. Three, a virus. Four, a computer virus. Five, mold. Six, robots. Now, you can roll your own. I'm going to give you five seconds to fill in the blank. And I'm going to do this, too, with you. The Earth is invaded by... Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. I say horses. And here's the plot. A small town is invaded by horses that have been affected by a virus that came to Earth on a meteor. Uh, at night, the horses change into beautiful, sexy women who go to nightclubs to find prey. They flirt with young men, get them drunk, take them back to the stables to have sex. In the morning, the young men are found dead with saddle on their backs. Curtain. Title of the film, The Lost Rider. Setting, a veterinary lab in Vancouver. Now, the movie I actually was involved in 
in Vancouver was called The Traveler. But due to some random misfortune and timing, Bill Paxton was starring in another movie called The Traveler that was going to be released the same month. So our producers changed the name of our film to The Visitor, which was really not very scary. The Visitor sounded like it could be a domestic comedy about Gramps moving in over the summer. So they changed the title again to Night Visitor, which was also not particularly creepy or sci-fi. In fact, if you added the word naughty to it, it would sound like a Russ Meyer movie. But hey, what are you going to do? The plot of the movie is as follows. A spaceship crash lands somewhere in the American desert, which looks an awful lot like a Vancouver suburb. I play a power-mad megalomaniac colonel. And I got to ask you, is there any other kind in these movies? But hey, we keep getting funded by Congress. And I am put in charge of recovering the alien from the spaceship. My soldiers find the creature and take him to our secret lab, which looks an awful lot like the main hub of a Canadian sewer system. But then in a strange breach of military etiquette, I begin a ruthless campaign of kidnapping and murder to eliminate anyone who knows about the spaceship and the little spaceman, including taking out some of my own men. Why do I do this? Why not? Not sure. So I ask the writer and the director, what is the big deal with people finding out about the alien crash landing on Earth? They both looked at me as if I asked the dumbest question since who gave the go-ahead for this film. The writer said, are you kidding? If the news got out that the alien was here, there would be a worldwide panic. Who knows what kind of truth he would reveal to us? Wow, was I far off. When I read the script, I was operating from the point of view that it would actually be kind of fun if we knew an alien had landed. But that was because I'd watched a lot of science fiction films like this when I was a kid. The movie had, as a whole, large helpings of the usual ingredients. Women and children in jeopardy, angry men with guns, and an innocent, uncomprehending alien. Just like the real world. The script was profoundly goofy. It would have been depressing if it weren't so derivative. Now, seriously, it would have been worse if it was someone's original vision. There was a genuine comfort over the fact that several dozen variations of this movie had been made over the past 40 years. Some of the more prominent films that I could think of right now that dealt with aliens bearing some sort of unbearable truth would be The Day the Earth Stood Still, Earth versus the Flying Saucer, The Invisible Invaders, The Ten Commandments. I include that epic of Cecil B. DeMille's because the presence of God in that movie, in form and deed, is very alienish and highly reminiscent of the classic Enemy from Space. One of the main ingredients of this kind of film is something referred to as suspense, usually leading up to a vaguely dissatisfying climax. And there are several possibilities in establishing suspense. The alien movie I worked on chose to go the route of not showing you the creature until the final scenes. Consequently, most of the movie was a tease, an alien tease. As filmmakers, we know this visual forehand used in these type of movies all too well. The sound of a falling flower base in another room. Odd shadows moving on the walls or under closed doors. Slime on floors and door handles. It all means that an alien was nearby, but we missed him. Soon we start getting the gnawing feeling that somebody is setting up the camera in the wrong room on purpose. 
The central drama of the piece becomes, will we see it? Bet we don't. The filmmakers confuse suspense with frustration that builds throughout the film until you feel like you're talking to an IRS agent at an audit or playing golf. Our producers claimed that they wanted to keep the suspense of the film in the Hitchcockian tradition. Translation, the audience's psychological horror of imagining what the alien actually looked like was going to be greater than seeing him from the get-go. When I saw our alien on the set, I had to agree with the producers. It was better not having seen him for the first 95% of the movie. Not so much out of being true to the Hitchcockian tradition, but it was more of clinging to the Shakespearean tradition of assuming a virtue if you have it not. The alien came out of the makeup trailer looking like a green teenager covered in calamari. It did not inspire fear, but hunger. I kept looking at it, wishing I had a squeeze of lemon and some cocktail sauce. I kept having an irresistible urge to eat sushi. Of course, the main reason why the alien was not seen throughout the movie was because of cost. Good aliens are hard to find, which is why when you do have a good alien, like Ridley Scott did in Alien, you have a classic and you have a franchise. All of the actors in our film and in many other actors in L.A. working on other science fiction films would be put up at the Sudden Place Hotel a.k.a. Hollywood North, a.k.a. The Grey Palace. After a long day of menacing women and children, we could sit down in the Girard Room, the hotel's wonderful bar complete with panel walls, burning fireplace, and a prominent moose head. And this is a side note. I just talked to some of my friends in Canada, and I found out they replaced the moose head with a mirror. And I'm asking all of our Canadian friends out there, is there anything Freudian about that? Don't know, just mentioning it. On any given night, you could have one of the aforementioned highly alcoholic Canadian beers or a glass of what was described as Canadian wine and talk over the day's work with friends and mingle with the locals who knew this was an actor's bar and hung out here in hopes of getting lucky. And by that, I mean getting into a movie. Packs of young, attractive Canadian actresses were always hanging around the Girard Room in hopes of getting discovered by a producer. There were always these apocryphal stories floating around about the local actress who was cast as Queen of the Space Vampires. But I always suspected these stories were started by producers. The next week, we had to shoot one of the climactic scenes of our movie, And here we experienced another hitch that often happens in low-budget science fiction films, the last-second rewrite. The scene involved a confrontation between myself and the heroine of the movie, which was played by the wonderful Faith Ford. She had stolen the alien from me and hid it in a box. I retaliate by kidnapping her little boy. This scene was the exchange, the final showdown. Of course, my real plan was to take the alien, kill them all. As originally scripted, the action took place at night in a deserted warehouse district with snipers in helicopters and on the ground ready to take out our leading lady. Faith rightfully pointed out to our director and producers that it made no sense for a character to go to a deserted warehouse at night. Not at all, and especially not to meet me. Her character was smart. And she would pick a safe exchange location. After all, she had the alien. She could dictate terms. Logic would demand that the exchange take place during the day 
and in a crowd. Not only did that argument make sense, but it also meant they could cut out the helicopters, which were costing too much anyway. When I saw on the call sheet that we were shooting at the Vancouver Art Museum during the day instead of shooting at the warehouse district at night, I was a little confused. That morning on the set, I went up to the director and asked why we changed the scene. He explained the logic of not having the scene occur at night in a deserted place. I nodded. And then I explained the reason why the exchange was happening at night and in a deserted place was the logic the movie had set up that the alien had to be kept secret. In the movie, I had killed anyone who found out about the alien. The whole reason for kidnapping her son was to get the alien back in secret. If we are going to have this hostage swap in public in broad daylight, how is I going to keep the hundreds of extras from seeing the alien? I would have to kill them all. The director looked like he wanted to go back home to Argentina. He asked what I would suggest. I said, well, I would suggest a rewrite about three months ago, but this isn't a time travel movie. He looked at me wearily. So? I said, so, the only thing we could do at this point is keep the alien in the box. Well, the director says, well, then how do you know the alien is in the box without opening the box and showing everyone the alien? I said, we have to rely on science and a history of other alien movies. We have to use an alien detector. What? He said. I said, yeah, we need to come up with some piece of phony scientific equipment that has been developed kind of like a Geiger counter that can tell if an alien is in the area. And I'll pass it over the closed box. I'll read the display. Bingo. It will read positive for aliens. And then we can move forward. No one will know. And that's all I got. The director thought about it for a second and nodded. He liked it. Now the search started for a believable alien detector. One of the guys in the sound department offered up a decibel reader a handheld piece of equipment with a gradiated scale and a moving pointer on the front. At one end of the scale, it had a C, and at the other end, it had an A. And I thought, hey, this is going to be perfect because the A at the one end could stand for alien. And what made this even better was that this little detector had a button on the side, and if I pressed it with my thumb, it would make the pointer jump to the letter A. So the cameraman was happy, too, because he could actually get a close-up shot of the device showing the jumping needle indicating the presence of an alien. The director was happy, but he wanted to know if he should do something about the C at the other end of the dial. I mean, would that be confusing? Should they black it out? What would the C stand for? I thought about it for a second and said, crustaceans. The C could stand for crustaceans. Yeah. Don't worry, it'll be okay. And it was. We shot the scene with the alien detector. <laughs> it remains in the final cut of the movie. No one mentioned it at the network. No one mentioned it in the reviews or in the letters to TV Guide. As I recall, the alien remains in a box <laughs> the entire film, never to be seen, following the Chekhovian tradition, which states, in 200 years, who will know the difference? That night, I celebrated in the Girard Room. I had a few drinks with producers and the cast, 
It was a celebration. We had successfully navigated the uncertain bridge of reality and crossed over into an even more uncertain world where everything was possible. I was in Vancouver shooting the movie formerly known as The Traveler, formerly known as The Visitor, currently known as Night Visitor, and I had a day off. Days off in Vancouver can be a wonderful thing. You can go to Stanley Park or Granville Island and explore. You can eat fudge by the pound at the candy store across from the hotel, or just sit outside and sip a cappuccino at one of the 300 Starbucks in the city. (laughs) It's true. I walked back to the park by the seawall, looked like rain, so I headed back to the hotel. I went up to my room and turned on the TV. The television at the Sutton Place had three regular channels. I flipped on channel one, and there I was on Seinfeld. I changed the channel, and there I was again in an older movie called The Marla Hansen Story. And I changed the channel again, and bam, there I was in Thelma and Louise sitting in a helicopter with Harvey Keitel. It was almost supernatural. And there were a lot of ways I could have interpreted this omen. I could have been proud. I was all over Canadian television. That wasn't it. I was shooting a science fiction movie. Perhaps I died at the fudge store and went into some sort of hell where I was doomed to watch myself forever. No, that wasn't it either. No, what fascinated me was that in each role on TV, I was displayed in different states of baldness. It was like strapping into an unflattering time machine, kind of like Dorian Gray in reverse. The bottom line was I could not afford to age anymore, so I turned off the set. I went down to the bar to kill some time. It was early, and the Girard room was pretty empty. Deb, the bartender, oh, I've known Deb for years. She's wonderful. So I decided I would just sit at the bar, study my script, and chat with Deb if I needed human companionship started reading my scenes for tomorrow, when out of the corner of my eye, I noticed an older man sit down a couple stools away from me. He eyed me suspiciously, then opened up his newspaper and began to read. Then there was the zen sound of two men reading while drinking alcoholic beverages. This went on for a couple minutes, and then the man spoke to me. You an extra? I I said, I beg your pardon? He says, I see you're reading a script. I was wondering if you're an extra. I said, no, no, sir, I'm an actor. He goes, yeah, well, extras are always saying they're actors. I said, maybe, but they don't give extra scripts. So, uh, you say you're an actor. Do you have lines? I said, yes, I have a lot of lines. He said, well, you don't look like an actor. You're bald. I said, well, you could go upstairs right now and turn on your TV and see me with hair. He says, yeah. I go, yeah, on all three channels. He says, so what do you play in this movie? 
I said I play the bad guy, the main bad guy. I murder people. And yes, I was thinking about murdering this strange man right now. I'd only been talking to him for two minutes. Huh. In acting class, students always ask me, how can you play a murderer like Othello or Macbeth? Easy. Imagine you're Othello. Desdemona comes into the bedroom and asks you if you're an extra. Slight digression. I can't think of any other profession that's publicly hammered to the extent acting is on a regular basis. I mean, I would never go up to someone and say, so you say you're a waiter. What restaurant do you work at? I mean, is it a nice place or just a McDonald's? Because if it's a McDonald's, you're not really a waiter, are you? Uh, Do you do dinner or just lunch? Do you have a jacket with your name on it? Oh, you don't have a full bar, just wine. No, no, that's okay. That's okay. I understand. I get it. Although this fellow at the bar was riling me, I thought I was only in the country for two more weeks and I didn't want to be arrested by a Mountie. It would be humiliating. So I introduced myself. I said, good evening, Stephen, Stephen Topolowsky. He goes, never heard of you. I said, well, what's your name? Because I'm sure I've never heard of you either. He offered his hand. Freddie. Hmm. He didn't look like a Freddie, but why would someone lie about something like that? I said, well, nice to meet you, Freddie. What do you do? He looked at me and said, I'm a gambler. I go, really? He goes, yeah. I I said, I mean, a professional gambler? He goes, yeah, that's what I do. And if you play me, I will break you. I mean it. I will break you. I said, well, then I'm not going to play you. I don't gamble, Freddie. Freddie snorted. Yeah, that's what they all say. And then they take me on, and then I have no mercy. I'm not kidding. I've broken men, and they've cried. I took away their homes, their cars, their bank accounts, and they cried. Oh, please, please don't. It's all I've got. i got a wife and family. And I just look at them, and I don't care. I don't even feel sorry for them. I said, well, whoa, that, that sounds a little harsh there, Freddie. He said, well, if it was all he had, he shouldn't have played me. And I said, no, no, you're right. You got a point there. You are right about that. That's why I don't gamble. Now, at this point, I knew I was involved with either a crazy person, a drunk person, or Satan. And I didn't like any of my options. Freddie muttered, afraid to lose? I said, what? He said, are you afraid to lose? Is that why you don't gamble? I said, no, sir. I don't gamble because I don't get enough pleasure in winning. I get tense when I win. I hate it when I lose. So what's the point? Freddie straightened up in his seat. The point is I'm a fucking millionaire. That's the point. I can buy this hotel. I could buy this whole fucking block. I could buy and sell you a dozen times over. I said, well, of course you can. That's easy. I'm an actor. I'm working on a space movie now where we never see the alien. So what does that make me? He goes, what? I go, exactly. I can be bought, Freddie. In fact, that's kind of my job description. Stephen Tobolowsky, he can be bought. Freddie was unaccustomed to verbal Aikido. He just stared at me, slightly confused or maybe slightly drunk. He pulled out a folded dollar bill from his wallet. You want to play some liar's poker? I go, no. Are you kidding? Put that thing away. That's probably your goofy liar's poker dollar with six zeros on it. Put it away. Put it away. 
I don't want you to break me. I don't want you to make me cry. I don't want to be another corpse on your doorstep, Freddie. I'm doing you a favor. Freddie put the dollar back in his wallet. Yeah, Margot has begged me to stop. Margot? Yeah, my wife. She begged me to stop. I said, well, maybe you should listen to her, especially if you're already a millionaire. Maybe enough is enough, huh? Tell me, do you have any children? He said, I have a son. He's studying to be a screenwriter at USC. I'm thinking, screenwriter? Hearing that was actually enough revenge for me in this exchange? But I continued. You know, we could have used him on this movie, Freddie. I mean, we need some rewrites. Well, God bless him. I hope he does well. Freddie grew pale. What does God have to do with it? God has nothing to do with it. Fuck that. I paid for his school, not God. My son does the work. My son gets the grades, not God. I said, Freddie, take it easy. It's just an expression. I was only wishing your son well. Well, then keep your stinking God out of it. I suddenly felt my cheeks flush. A spike of anger made my mind go blank for a second. Freddie noted my shaken composure with another sip of scotch. You know, I've heard the gamblers are often looking for the tell in their opponents. These are the little subconscious gestures that always tell the truth, the sign that betrays your bluffs or reveals all that you hold dear. I realized Freddie had been looking for mine, and he may have found it. In my experience, I found that the glue that holds a person together is either vanity or values. What Freddie underestimated was that he also had a certain transparency. Two women in their mid-twenties walked past us and took a table near the end of the bar. It caused Freddie to stop in his tracks. He watched them as they took their seats, scoped out the room. Freddie eyed them, sipped on his scotch. And I have to be honest, I was unprepared for this turn in the road. I don't know why I was, but I was. Freddie goes, hmm, they're cute. I go, well, they're 25, Freddie. They're supposed to be cute. I mean, that's their job. Hey, maybe we should buy him some drinks and go over there. I go, what? We should buy him some drinks. Suddenly, this man, who'd been trying to dismantle me for the better part of an hour, was now wanting to hit on these girls that were 40 years younger than he was. And he wanted me to be his wingman. I said, Freddie, we're married. What would Margot say? And they're young enough to be your granddaughters. Your granddaughters. What would you talk to them about? School? What cell phone plan they have? Would you try to get them to play liar's poker with you and break them? Because I sure you could go over there right now and make them cry. In fact, I guarantee it. In fact, I will go further, Freddie. If you went over there and took them drinks, I promise you, you would ruin their evening. He goes, you think? I go 100% positive, absolutely no question. Really? I go, really? In fact, I'll bet you. Freddie took a deep breath. He was silent. He stared right into me. It was the first time in this entire horrible conversation things became serious. He says, so what do you want to bet? I said, well, you know how I feel about gambling. We'll have to make it interesting. Freddie's ruddy complexion was starting to transform. Name it. I said, I bet you I can prove to you that God exists 
right here, right now, in 15 minutes. Freddie was positively glowing. And what happens if you lose? I said, if we lose, Freddie, I will buy drinks for the girls and I will go over to the table with you. Freddie was almost jumping off his stool. And what if you win? If I win, we don't go over. Well, what do you want from me? A Freddie. I think just the look on your face will be enough. I'm sure of that. Freddie considered the wager. He looked at me again. He offered his hand. You're on. He looked at his watch. You got 15 minutes. Starting now. I took a breath. I thought. Freddie? What was the time in your life you were most desperate when you were in the greatest despair? Freddie smiled. His face softened. He said, I was 27 years old. I was a geologist surveying one of the ice sheets of Greenland. It was winter. That means night. No sun. We went out in groups of four. We had small lanterns dangling from our backpacks so you could see the rest of the party in the dark. We'd been out for hours. We were exhausted. We were walking back to base camp, and a blizzard was coming up fast. It was over 100 degrees below zero. Wind made it hard for me to walk. I'd fallen behind the rest of the group, but I could still see the three little lanterns dangling in the darkness. I couldn't see where I was going. I lost my concentration. I stepped into a hole in the ice, a crevasse. I fell into a fissure 2,000 feet deep. But I was lucky. I landed on an ice shelf three feet wide, 30 feet from the surface. Another foot out from the wall, I would have fallen a half a mile. I landed on my backpack. I tried to get up. I couldn't. I was hurt. I didn't know if I'd broken my spine, my pelvis, a leg. I just knew I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't move. It was quiet down in the ice. I could hear the wind roaring up top. We were all given whistles for emergencies, and I got mine out, and I blew it, and I blew, and I blew, and I heard it echo inside the hollow glacier. But I knew in the blizzard they would never hear me. So I'm thinking, if I try to stand up and my leg gives way or I slip on the ice, I'm dead. If I try to climb out, and I fell, I would never land on this shelf again. All I could do was lie there, looking up at the black sky and die. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that while I was lying there, I prayed to God, oh, please, please, oh, God, please help me. I did not. I said, no, no, Freddie, I, I wasn't going to say that at all. I was just going to say, wow, that sounds bad, Freddie. I mean, I didn't expect that. that. That is a bad situation. I'm sitting here wondering how you ever got out. I mean, I can't believe you're sitting here. How did you survive? Freddie smiled. And he said, hey, you know, I know where you're going with this one too. And it had nothing to do with God. It was my partners. They saved me. They got back to base camp. And after about 20 minutes, they realized I wasn't coming back. And they got dressed again. And they went out and they found me. They pulled me out. They saved my life, not God. I thought about it for a second and asked, why? 
Freddie said, why what? Why did they save you? You weren't family, and I'm sure it wasn't your endearing personality. So why? Freddie raised his eyebrows. He sipped his drink. No answer. I pressed on. I mean, I'm looking at it from their perspective, Freddie. They come back. They're wet. They're freezing, too. They get back to safety, to the fire. They undress. They have a hot toddy, and they're ready to unload on the day, and then they realize you're not there. So what did they do? They make a decision. A decision not based on logic. Certainly not based on self-preservation or survival of the fittest. They put their drinks down, probably curse you a little. They suit up and head back out into the storm. They left safety and comfort for you. And they did it for selfish reasons. They knew if they left you there to die, it would haunt them forever. They knew that they had to do everything in their power to save your life, not because it was you, but because it was life. In that instant, they knew on a molecular level that life is holy. Yeah, it was your friends that saved you, but they did it because they felt the invisible connection that holds us all together. And I would say that invisible cord is God. Without God, there is no holy. And without holy, there is no you. You died on that ledge. Freddie looked at me. I felt like we sat silently for five minutes, even though I'm sure it was only five seconds. And then he smiled and said, pretty good. Pretty good. Okay, I'll give you that one. And you know I was right. The look on his face was enough. And, and I don't know that Freddie really bought everything I said, but I do think he was amused by my effort, and maybe that was Freddie's tell, that he would always have a weakness for someone who made an effort, someone who suited up and went back out to face the storm. We ordered another round of drinks. Freddie paid. He took a sip of his scotch, looked over to the girls again. Do you really think it would be a mistake to buy him some drinks and go over there? I said, Freddie, I thought you said you were a gambler. And the way I learned it, the first rule of gambling is, is that if you're afraid to lose, you can't afford to play. That was A Wager with Freddie, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, you want to let people know how people can find you uh, this week? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, best way to get a hold of me is at stephentobolowsky at gmail.com. And I'll spell it that uh, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T is in Tom, O-B is in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y 
at gmail.com. And I would like to say, David, that I want to thank everybody for the emails since it is a season of Thanksgiving and of giving blessing of people giving blessings to you. And that is not only have people given me encouragement, but they've given me a lot of great ideas of things that they want as stories in the future. For example, last week's podcast was an idea from an email. Someone wanted me to do a Mississippi burning story and an Alan Parker story. So I want to thank everybody out there and keep writing me at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. Well, speaking of encouragement, you know, uh, I, we actually need your help, guys. If you're listening to this podcast right now, there's a really substantial way you can help out this podcast, and that's by heading over to our iTunes page, look, looking for Stephen Tobolowsky uh, or the Tobolowsky Files on iTunes and the podcast section, and just leaving a review for us. Uh, if you just leave a review, it really helps to increase the profile of the show, helps get the word of the show out there, and gets more people listening. So really appreciate it if you could go on over to iTunes and just leave a few words for us there. Um, so you can find all of the back episodes of the Tobolowski Files at tobolowskifiles.com. And uh, why don't we wrap up for the day? Uh, you can find me at twitter.com slash davechensky. That's davechensky. And facebook.com slash chendavid. Stephen, I, th- I think you're also on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter, absolutely. And, and how, how do I pronounce that address I'm at? It's just twitter.com slash whatever your username is. So Tobolowski. So twitter.com slash Tobolowski. And, uh, and that's going to take us to the end of this episode of the Tobolowski Files. Uh, tune in next week. We're going to be doing a special Christmas episode, right, Stephen? That is correct. You know, I want to just tell everybody that I experienced a very, very, very special Christmas a few years ago. And I'm going to share that story with you next week. Awesome. So people can look forward to that. And uh, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Have a good week. Bye-bye. <laughs>